of this season. There's a tweet from the church curmudgeon, this week is the start of Lent, time to check your dryer vent. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. It's Lent, not Lent. Okay, you'll get it later. Just think about it. It rhymes. Take it home with you. It'll work out. But Lent is a 40-day season of reflection and repentance that leads up to Easter. It has the primary focus of the cross, and so we have uh, moved the cross to the front here during this season. It'll be suspended here. Visually, that's our focus, right? On the cross of Christ uh, during this season of his great redemptive work on that, that cross. There's a devotional um, called The Journey to the Cross. It's on Amazon. You can pay for it. Or if you'll go to our website in our Lent resources, it's there for free. Uh, and it will take you daily with some really helpful reflections on this season. Um, there's some other resources there as well that you can consider for you and for your family. But in this particular devotional, it describes Lent in a really helpful way. It sounds like it says, on the Christian calendar, Lent, which is from the Latin word meaning 40th, is the 40 days beginning on Ash Wednesday, this past Wednesday, and leading up to Easter Sunday. Sundays themselves are not counted in these 40 days as they're generally set aside as days of renewal and celebration. Many Easter's of sorts. So the number 40 carries great biblical significance based on the 40 days of rain Noah and his family endured in the flood, the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness, Jesus' 40-day fast in the wilderness, the 40 days Jesus spent on the earth after his resurrection and many other references, they say. 40 days has been used by God to represent a period of trial, of testing, and of preparation. Likewise, Lent is a season of preparation and repentance during which we anticipate the death on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday of Jesus. It is this very preparation and repentance aimed at grasping the intense significance of the crucifixion that gives us a deep and powerful longing for the resurrection, the joy of Easter. Now, the journey of Lent is to immerse ourselves in this grand story so that it might increase our appreciation of Easter and love for Jesus. May we mourn the darkness in our hearts and rejoice in the light of God who came into the world to save us. And that's from that devotional, The Journey to the Cross. Now, because of the connection with Jesus' 40 days of fasting in preparation for his ministry uh, in the wilderness, this season is often marked by some kind of fasting, some kind of giving up of something um, by many Christians as a way to devote more than usual time and focus to meditations on, on the uh, cross of Christ. So people will often give something up during the Lenten season. So at this point, another point of clarification might be in order. I hope this will be helpful if you look at the screen with me. Um, Jeff gives it up for Lent, okay? That is not what we mean when we talk about giving something up for Lent. You'll get that later too, just remember that one. Um, Lent, much like the season of Advent, though it's anchored in the scriptures, um, it's not mandated there. It comes to us through church history. And, as, and as, a, as a result of that, it's not compulsory. You don't have to give up anything for Lent. You don't have to do any of, of those kinds of things. In fact, if you're troubled by um, the celebration of an extra-biblical season like Lent, 
um, then I would just suggest don't celebrate Lent. Instead, um, just celebrate a season of meditation and reflection on the cross of Christ and forsaking sin. Okay? Don't call it Lent. Just celebrate the cross of Christ, and you can't go wrong with that. So over the next six weeks, today included, leading up to Easter, uh, we'll be meditating together on different perspectives on the atonement. Um, atonement refers to the work Jesus did on the cross to reconcile us to God, to make us one with him. And so each week we'll look at the cross from a different angle. Um, hopefully the wonder of the love of God for the likes of us will increase all the more. We'll look at Christ as victor, Christ as redeemer and ransom, Christ as our curse, Christ as our sacrifice and sin bearer, Christ as our substitute. These will be the different images we'll look at throughout uh, the coming weeks. But today we want to look at what it means that in his cross work, Jesus is our example. And if you want to turn to a passage in your Bible this morning to follow along, the main passage will be in his first Peter chapter 2. And as you find your way there, I'd like to pray for our time in the scriptures once again. So, so bow with me, please. Lord, delight, delight in this season where we think more deeply, reflect more often on the wonder of the love of God for us demonstrated in the cross of Christ. God, may we grasp it in ways that we never have. May it shape us. May it increase the ways that we love you back, including the one that we'll talk about today. So help us, Lord. Have mercy on us even now through your word to exalt your son and help us follow him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This we pray in his great name. Amen. So, um, today, just to warn you, Jesus is asking a great ask of us today. Um, what we're going to look at today is going to cost you something. Uh, I don't want you to be mistaken about that. What we're talking about today will cost you. It is a great ask. But as we think about that ask together, it's so, so important that you remember that it is anchored in the greatest of loves. This greatest ask, it's anchored in the greatest of loves. Revelation chapter 1 declares it beautifully when it speaks of Jesus and it describes him as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, we follow Jesus because he loves us. And he has freed us from our sins by his life's blood. Okay. The rest of our series is going to put this love on parade in front of us as we look at the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross, from all these different angles. And just to kind of shake things up, during Lent, with the cross suspended up there, you might want to sit in a different place in the worship center. Oh my gosh! You guys might want to sit like over here. And you guys might want to sit over here. I know I'm messing with your world here, right? <laughs> But just to physically think about the different ways we see the cross 
It's multifaceted, many wondered. So if you're, if you're brave and daring, mix it up in the coming weeks, right? Sit in someone else's seat and, uh, and help rock their world a little bit in the, in the coming weeks. But what is the great ask that the cross makes of us? And Jesus presses his disciples with this frequently. It's common language that he uses. This is from Matthew's account. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, Jesus is asking for our greatest love. More than the love of a son for his mother. More than the love of a father for his daughter. Jesus is asking us to love him more. And this love has a shape to it. Look at the very next verse in Matthew's telling of this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The ancients had a word for it. They called it cruciform. It just means cross-shaped. And it's still used to describe architecture. Um, in fact, when you leave today, if you walk out into our lobby and you look up at the ceiling of our lobby, it's cruciform. There's a cross intently, intentionally built into our lobby by the architect. You've probably never seen it. Uh, but it's up there. Look on your way out. That's what, that's what they mean when they use the language of being cruciform. It's being cross-shaped. But this is not about the shape of a building. This is about the shape of your life. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, Jesus says. First, Jesus says that he wants our greatest love, and then he tells us the shape that our love should take. It takes the shape of cross-bearing. And this demand by Jesus is littered throughout the gospel accounts. Luke puts it this way. Jesus says to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does that look like? What does Jesus have in mind behind this cross-bearing life that he's calling us to? And Luke tips his hand a little bit more than the others. He says this cross-bearing life is a kind of self-denial. He says it's a life of preferring God and others above ourselves, my own interests, my own pleasures. Something matters more. I love something, someone more. It's a kind of dying to selfishness. Bishop Mole said years ago, people carrying crosses were people going to an execution. And Luke tells us that this is daily. This is our everyday life. A daily following of Jesus' example of suffering. Now Peter writes about this sacrificial following of Jesus. He uses different words than cross-bearing, but he's writing about the same idea in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
where we read, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter says Jesus has left us an example so that we could follow in his steps. He, he puts plain words to the image of cross-bearing we saw in the Gospels. To follow Jesus' example, to walk in his steps, in the way of suffering. You know, it was popular a while back to ask the question and wear the, the gear, uh, what would Jesus do, right? WWJD. And Peter tells us the answer to that question. Jesus would suffer. Jesus would suffer. And now Peter has a particular kind of suffering in mind. Um, to make sense out of what he means here, back up with me a couple of verses to verse 18. He starts by talking to servants. And he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So in this section of his letter, Peter's writing to servants, to, to slaves. And he calls them to submit to their masters, even the unjust ones, even when it means they would suffer unjustly. Okay. It makes you glad you're not a slave. Right? This is what the life of a Christian slave is to be like. But Professor Karen Jobes helps us connect to this. She says, Slaves were the lowest social class in Greek and Roman society, having to submit to even unjust masters. And they, therefore, are here a paradigm for the status of all Christians. Regardless of one's social status, she says, Christians are to consider themselves to be slaves of God. And so the actual slave who is obedient to his master, exemplifies that role for the entire Christian community. This teaching, she's saying, is not just for literal slaves. It's for all who follow the way of Jesus, right? This is for you and me. And it's a call to follow in Jesus' steps and suffer not for doing wrong, rather to suffer for doing good. Peter says that the slaves are living out their faith as earnest Christians, and they suffer for that life. And Peter's clear, it's not for suffering for doing wrong. This is a call to endure suffering that comes to you because you followed Jesus and have done what is right in his eyes. And we do that because we are mindful of God, he says. We remember the God who loves us and we choose the hard way of unjust suffering. Robert Baker wrote, he says, as I grow older, I care less 
what people think about me and more what God thinks of me. I expect to be with him much longer than with you. So we're to be mindful of God, remembering God, suffering for his sake in order to please him and to experience his pleasure on our lives. I love the language that's used here. Twice he says, this is a gracious thing, right? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Another translation, some of your Bibles put it a different way. It says, this brings favor. This brings favor in the sight of God. Um, this is enticing language to me. If you want to experience the gracious favor of God on your life, as that great philosopher Mando put it, this is the way. <laughs> this is the way. It's the way of suffering. This way brings the favor of God upon your life. Okay. And, uh, and I long for that. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. One of the scriptures I'm thinking a lot about these days is Psalm 5, verse 12. It says, For you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. I want that. Do you want that? There's something about the favor of God upon my life. I want that. Kind of like the way a son or a daughter wants to please their father. A lady named Sarah Scherf wrote about this. She said, I spent last week at the beach in Florida relaxing with my family. This week was for eating fresh seafood, sitting by the beach with my nieces and sister, throwing the frisbee on occasion, and for catching up with my dad and his new wife. My parents are divorced, and the process of their dissolution took about nine years. I had erratic and often intensely negative feelings for and about my dad throughout my high school and college years, but those feelings, she says, have mellowed out, and as adults, we get along okay. We live 1,200 miles apart, don't see each other often. But I'm always glad to visit my dad when I can. This beach trip was his and his wife's initiative, and they provided a big place for their family and me and my siblings to meet up and spend some time together. She says, but at the week's end, my dad said something to me that left my mind quiet and full of one thought. At the end of a perfect day of hunting for shelves with the little girls, making a sleeping dragon sand sculpture and laughing hard with my sister and my dad. We had to pack up the car and pass around goodbye hugs. And my dad hugged and kissed me. His arms are still so strong and tight, no one's hugs feel like his. He told me again how thankful he was that we could be there. And he told me he was so proud of me. And then she says, I have to admit, after hearing those words from my dad, my 29-year-old self was filled. I think I can guess that my dad's been proud of me. I'm at least sure he's not disappointed in who I am or what I've done with my life. But hearing him say it to me, despite all our past and its residue, despite my independence from him, despite the deeply affirming relationship I have with my husband, 
It was like, I've needed nothing else, she said. See, deep down, in our heart of hearts, we cry out with the psalmist, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. This is the way, Peter says. This is the way to experience the gracious favor of your Father upon your life. It's the way of daily denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. In the way of suffering, being mindful of God and doing good. So there's a prayer I pray from time to time, you've, you've read it with me before on Sundays, it's called the Litany of Humility. It has a section on the deliverance from fear that has relevance for us this morning as we think about facing unjust suffering. Maybe we could read it together. Let's read it. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated, deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, O Jesus. Peter says, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. To suffer for doing good, Peter says, this is our calling. It's nothing less than that. This is your life's calling. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Being mindful of God and his great love for us, we will suffer unjustly for his name if we need to. Okay. If it comes our way. And this is what it means. That Jesus is our example in the atonement. It, the ancients called it uh, Christus exemplar, right? Christ, our example. We are to follow in his cross-bearing steps. And as Luke told us earlier, you could pick up on it, this is not necessarily a literal thing, right? Because he says it's supposed to be a daily thing. A literal death on a cross is a one-time deal. And he says, this is daily for you. So, it involves, he says, denying ourselves. And when we put Luke up alongside Peter, we could say that we deny ourselves because we're mindful of God. And the example of Jesus, who literally suffered on the cross for us. The language is vivid, leaving you an example. Listen again to Professor Jobes. She says the Greek word translated example was used to refer to a pattern of letters of the alphabet over which children learning to write would trace. Think of a, of a 
paint by numbers kind of a thing. And they would trace their letters over it. She says it suggests the closest of copies. English words such as example or model or pattern are too weak, she says, for Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in our lives. So Jesus has given us a pattern to trace. Like school children learning their letters, we are learning how to live. And it's cruciform in its shape, right? Peter says he's given us steps to follow. It's been likened to following someone's footsteps on the beach, like where you step exactly in their footsteps. You match their stride, you match their pace, you match their direction. One writer says, one cannot step into the footsteps of Jesus and head off in any other direction than the direction he took. And his footsteps lead to the cross. And so Peter now, he begins pulling on imagery and language from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 53. It's, it's a, wonderful, a wonderful prophetic picture of Jesus as the, of the Messiah, as the suffering servant of God. And Peter is taking that prophesy of Isaiah the Messiah as the suffering servant and applying it directly to Jesus as the suffering cross-bearer. He's telling us they're one and the same. Okay? The Messiah and Jesus, they're one. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And he's showing us how to walk in his steps by laying out his steps for us to see. He does that in the next couple of verses, and it's interesting. His focus is, in following Jesus in his steps, is on his speech, what Jesus says or, or won't say. Look at verse 22 and 23. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So citing the example of Jesus in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, Peter shows us his steps, the steps we are to follow by showing us Jesus' words or the lack thereof. His words are without sin. There are no lies. There's no deceit. There are no insults or threats from Jesus, even when he's falsely accused. If you could summarize it up, you'd say Jesus does not respond in kind. He doesn't get sucked into the vortex of blog comments, right? And respond as those who have responded to him and his group. When he suffered, he did not threaten, though he had tens of thousands of angels at his disposal, so he told Peter in the garden. Rather, he entrusted himself to God. He deferred to the Father's future justice rather than defending and justifying himself. This is our pattern. And in the next chapter of his letter, Peter will write, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
for this to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So this is the way. This is the way of Jesus. This is what it means to follow his example, to walk in his steps. We use his words. We refrain, refrain from responding in kind to those who curse us. We bless them. There's a guy named Thomas Cranmer. If you're a fan of history, you've probably heard of him. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 1500s. And uh, if you use the Book of Common Prayer today... Uh, you benefit from Cranmer's work. Uh, it's, it's some of his writings. Five centuries later, people are still using his, his little prayer book. But a contemporary of his, Alfred Lord Tennyson, said of him, this is how he described Archbishop Cranmer. He says, to do him a hurt was to beget a kindness from him. His heart was made of such Fine soil that if you planted in it the seeds of hate, they blossomed love. Brothers and sisters, this is the way. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to walk in his steps. Now, Peter's focus shifts in the next few verses from Jesus, our example to Jesus our substitute. And that's a perspective that we're going to spend an entire Sunday morning on in a few weeks. Um, but I'd like for us to look at his, these next two verses just for a moment to underscore something very, very important about what we're talking about today. Look at verse 24 and 25. Peter goes on and says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So this is an example. This is Jesus' example for us of embracing suffering to the extreme. This is literal cross-bearing. How much must Jesus love us? To be willing to suffer the cross unjustly so we could be free from our sins by his life's blood. And again, we'll return to that beautiful idea in a couple weeks or a few weeks. But this morning I want you to see that we cannot follow in his steps until we trust and hope in his death and resurrection as our sin bearer and our substitute. Peter says he bore our sins, not his own, on the cross so that we could walk in his steps. We could be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. It is by his atoning work on the cross that straying souls can be returned to a right relationship with their shepherd and follow his example. Salvation, true relationship with God through faith in the cross work and the resurrection of Jesus. Salvation must precede imitation or it leads to frustration. Okay? I love the way John Piper says this. He's so helpful for me. He says, imitation is not salvation. 
Okay, this is so important. Imitation is not salvation. But salvation brings imitation. Christ is not given to us first as model, but as Savior. In the experience of the believer, first comes the pardon of Christ, then the pattern of Christ. Skip down just a bit there. It says, in fact, only when we experience the pardon of Christ can he become a pattern for us. This sounds wrong because his sufferings are unique. They cannot be imitated. No one but the Son of God can suffer for us the way Christ did. He bore our sins in a way that no one else could. He was a substitute sufferer. We can never duplicate this. It was once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, divine, vicarious suffering for sinners is inimitable. However, this unique suffering, after pardoning and justifying sinners, transforms them into people who act like Jesus. Not like him in pardoning, but like him in loving. Like him in suffering to do good to others. Like him in not returning evil for evil. Like him in lowliness and meekness. Like him in patient endurance. Like him in servanthood. Jesus suffered for us uniquely that we might suffer with him in the cause of of love. So, pardon, right? Then pattern. So the big question for everybody here this morning is this. Have you been pardoned? Have you been pardoned by faith in the work of Jesus on the cross bearing your sins or are you still carrying your sins around? Okay. That is the big question. And as you worship with us during this Lenten season, and we think about that cross from all these different angles, I hope you'll come to a point where you can say with confidence, yes, yes, by faith in Jesus' sin-bearing, cross-bearing love for me, yes, I trust that he has died and pardoned me. And then I hope you'll also say with us, and I will, by the grace of God, now live by his pattern. I'll walk in his steps, a willing suffering in the name of Jesus. For those of us who have received this pardon this morning already, A.W. Tozer put it pointedly to us. He says, to be crucified means, first, the man on the cross is facing only one direction. Second, he is not going back. And third, he has no further plans of his own. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. How are you doing with that? With this whole in his steps kind of pattern? How are your words when someone pokes you, degrades you, slanders you, disagrees with you? How are your words in the blog comments section? You know, NPR ran a story about a father and son. It aired on their radio program, This American Life. And it focused on David Dickerson's return to the Christian household he had not visited since he left for college. And I find this fascinating that this is on NPR. 
About 10 years later, as a hostile 28-year-old, Dickerson wants to undermine his father's repressive faith. And on the show, David says, I had all this ammunition. I couldn't wait to use it. And I remember thinking, this is a showdown because my dad and I were at war. My dad didn't know this, but I was at war with him. I was at war with all Christians, and I was just waiting for an excuse to have a shot. So when his father innocently mentioned some mission work that he'd been praying about, David unleashed his fury on his dad. He said, I just rambled on like this, and I knew Essentially, while I was doing this, I was also assaulting his dream. You know, I was saying everything he was excited about that he was sharing with me was misbegotten, was a bad idea, was morally corrupt, and he just kind of quietly let me do my thing. David's father let him expend every round of ammunition without arguing or retreating. He simply looked at David and said, David, I'm really proud of everything that you've done. This is how David concluded the show. He said, I remember looking at my dad and I thought, I had sort of expected to argue. You know, not to win, but to come to some kind of armistice, right? You know, some kind of truce. I hadn't expected to lose completely because you can't argue with decency. You can't argue with goodness. How would you respond to that? How will you respond to that? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. Peter says we are to follow the example of Jesus, to walk in his steps, to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Not repaying evil for evil, but blessing those who do, even those who do us wrong. Because Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Denying, denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily. This is the way. This is Jesus' way. It is the way of suffering. Would you pray with me?